No one will be admitted after the guests check in. almost like a tickle but it's not a tickle and like I want to scratch it it's like like what mosquito bites make you do poison ivy yeah like what poison ivy makes you do but like the technical term for it oh did I tell you my joke about gas lighting yeah dang well some other time then. what do they call that an itch I, like yeah isn't that the technical term an itch no tech itch all right Welcome to Motel Hell! We're sorry to be here. <laughs> We're sorry you're here. I'm Ben the Beardo. I'm Dick the Fetty. We're doing a Tech Itch episode. We are. Uh, I guess we should preface it by saying uh, Ben's body just hates any kind of standard recording session. And so, it's a... Uh, what does that mean? I think that, or not session, but rather schedule... And I mean to say we were on a good schedule, and then somebody started dying again. Oh, somebody suddenly can't fucking record on weekends again. What? Excuse me? You heard me. Fight me. <laughs> fight me right now. We're no longer doing a Tech Age episode. We're, we're going to fight. fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so tonight we're going to be covering uh, the life and times of Tech Age, drum and bass producer from the UK. Uh, we'll be diving into that in a moment, but first we're going to do our little bit of movie review. Yes. A little pasta, pasta movie. Pasta movie? Well, it's Italian, so I don't know. Spaghetti. Sp- spaghetti. Spaghetti. All right, so. Our spaghetti screening. Our spaghetti screening was of Contamination by Luigi Cozy from 1980, uh, and I had seen it before, you had not. Correct. First thoughts? Big thoughts? Any uh, thoughts? Not as much boobage, not not as much none. boobies as I would thought there'd been. Yeah, there's yeah. none. Yeah, zero amount of tits. Which is okay. I mean, the last three horror movies, because I've been on a big horror movie kick recently that I've watched, none of them had exposed breasts. Yeah, I can say that I haven't. I've watched one movie since Elden Ring came out, which was when we watched Graveyard, the Graveyard of Honor. So I can't. I can't complain in that sense, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, so it's like an alien ripoff among other things, but it's a sci-fi horror film with some pretty decent exploding body chest cavity, uh, effects. They're not amazing, but the first couple of them are pretty impactful. I mean, that's, that's pretty much the whole thing. Yeah. They re- there really isn't anything else that happens gore wise. No, not really. People get shot. Yeah, a couple people get shot. There's there's a the, the finale. The last like fifteen twenty minutes of the film are pretty enjoyable, but it's definitely relatively sluggish in its pace, and it's hurt because Ian McCullough plays one of the main uh, guys in the film, who's probably most known at least to horror junkies from Zombie, but. You know he's he's fine. Like I mean, he's he could have done with more than more screen time. The other guy who's the the uh, cop is he's okay. It's just like not a particularly exciting script, 
and the lead female, she's she's like an older, she's a woman, uh, and you know she's she's fairly attractive, but like compared to some of the vava voom hotties you get in Italian films, you know, there's just not a lot of chemistry, not a lot happening between the three leads. Yeah, it, it definitely felt like they had a much grander vision for it, but the budget did not allow. No. Yeah, I mean, they put their money, you know, a lot of times in the gore effects, which is, at the end of the day... No, they spent all their money on that fucking end alien. <laughs> well, they okay, a fair amount. And it was pretty gooey, so I wasn't upset by that, but... And then probably a bunch of cocaine while they were in Colombia. Mm, I think... I don't know that that was actually Colombia, but regardless, uh, it was... Yeah, I mean, it was okay. We wanted something different. I hadn't seen it for a couple of years. You it was fun. It. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not like, it's not too crazy. Like, it's in comparison, right? So, like, uh, I finally watched the final um, reanimator movie mm. the other night. And, because uh, I've been on this kick of pretty much just not even asking my wife what she wants to watch. If she's sitting on the couch, I'm just going to put something on. And then she'll end up putting down her phone for, you know, an hour and a half. Sure. And watching it with me. But... That movie, I mean, but it was also, you know, it's Brian Usna. You know what to expect out of the man. But, funny enough, I, no no full frontal boobage. Wow. You, you see, like, a little peak of a nip when uh, the, one of the main characters and the female main character are in bed, but all blood. Definitely uh, no nip. But, like, you know, that, that movie had so, I mean, it's, it's reanimator. I don't know, like, they... They could put Jeffrey Combs and make him the reanimator, and I don't fucking care. I'd watch it. But, like, that's, like, one of those movies. I was like, man, I'm really glad I watched that. And I'm glad that we watched this. But it's, it's definitely not, like, one of those horror movies. Like, what did we watch recently that we really, really... I think one of the last things that we really liked was, like, what, The Church? Sure, yeah. I mean, that was a year and a half ago now. But, yeah, The Church was one of those where it was like, wow, this is a gem we missed out on. Or yeah. I, I recently rewatched Aquarius, also by Michele Suave, with Alexa... And that was, you know, that the church is a much grander vision of Italian horror compared to uh, Delirium slash Stage Fright. But that movie is such a tight, compact, like, um, 80s version of a, a giallo, you know, more or less slash, slasher, more traditional slasher. But, uh, yeah, those, those were movies where it was like, oh, I'm so glad I saw this. Yeah. This is a new favorite movie. This is just kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, this was fine. Like, it's just, it's got a lot of talky bits and a lot of uh, unnecessarily attempted uh, futuristic setting in the first half of the movie that just doesn't serve any purpose and looks worse than if they had said it in a government office. Or, like, even, like, fucking, like, just film it in a hospital. They yeah. film so much Italian horror in hospitals. It's like... Yeah, but the, the big draw of the film, I would say, beyond the gore effects, is the Goblin score, which is... Great. It, well, I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, like, a lot of the stuff that's not the main theme is okay. It doesn't feel particularly Goblin-esque, but the main theme is, like, straight up. They're just, like, building funky, the choral stuff kicks in, and it's got the... Like, arpeggiated synth stuff. Um, and I remember when we saw them live, they, you know, they played clips of the movies while they were playing the songs from it. And I remember watching this, being like, we gotta watch that movie. That was but, such a good show. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, as, as long as you don't think too much about it, it's a fun romp. Because, okay, so we didn't really even go over the premise, right? So, uh, Ghost Ship ends up in New York Haba, as they're calling it in the English tub. The Haba. Different, different... Accent, but that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Um, 
And they find all these uh, coffee boxes full of these goopy eggs. Yeah, they look like big avocados. Yeah, and one of the goopy eggs explodes on, like, three of the dudes, and those dudes' chests explode. Immediately. Um, yeah, and then the government gets involved. Yeah, and then they basically they have to track down where the eggs are coming from. They realize that what they were trying to do was basically destroy New York City with all these eggs by putting them into the sewers, or at least that's their guess. So it immediately has, hypothetically, this sense of, like, oh, we got to save the world, but it's not particularly effective beyond between the acting and the script. And, like, again, we watch a million Italian horror films. I'm not expecting the best film I've ever seen, but this one particularly just feels like, you know, it's got the bare bones of a movie, but not, there's nothing outside of those. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like they had meant to put smaller monsters in the movie, but they just couldn't afford it. Yeah. Or maybe they tried it and it didn't work. I don't know anything but the backstory about the movie. Because on the whole, it doesn't really make sense, right? So they they kind of like cut to the chase. There was a Mars expedition, because apparently we were able to get to and from Mars uh, without uh, the people aging, you know, a couple hundred years. And... Um, while there, they discovered some eggs, and one of the astronauts got possessed by this giant... No spoilers. You don't want that till way later in the movie. Okay. Spoilers. Skip to this time code. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Alright, let's spoil on. Uh, this giant one-eyed octopus... It's a 32-year-old movie. I have some respect. <laughs> Listen, no, 40, there are definitely 42, some movies... It's 42 years old. There have definitely Christ. been some movies where we've been like, we're not going to give away everything. Yeah. This is not one of those movies I feel like is completely necessary. Okay, yeah, that's fine. You kind of, like, you know something's laying the fucking eggs. Yeah. Uh, and, like, as soon as that ga- guy came on... As soon as that guy came on screen, I was like, that's got to be fucking Hamilton. Yeah. And, um... But, like... What what was this monster's plan? Just to blow up the planet? Like Yeah, well, I mean, it's basically being an alien ripoff. An alien, you know, you get your egg in the beginning, the facehugger comes out, the facehugger lays the eggs of an alien inside a person, and then that alien hatches, and those aliens attend the queen. Even in Alien, the sort of uh, scheme of reproduction doesn't make a lot of sense because there's one queen egg layer, and then there's all these other aliens that... So, I mean, like, if you want to go into alien lore, each of the drones carries one egg. I understand that, but the egg that they carry isn't for a queen. So, after a point, like, you can only reproduce one at a time. They can't reproduce together. Like, whatever. My point is that it doesn't make a ton of sense in some ways, but they were also bioweapons. They weren't just a regular species, blah, 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 blah. But this movie's, like... They want to have a face sucker come out of these eggs, but they can't afford yeah. to do that. So instead, the egg just spews goo, and then the goo kills people. And I'm fine with the goo being like alien goo that then, you know, infects the people. But fine. it happens instantaneously, <laughs> except for when it doesn't. And also, like, it just blows people up. It's not like they make new eggs or anything. So it, it at the end of the film, the big stinger is like there's one egg left on a crowded street in New York, but it blows up. So sure, maybe it kills twenty people, but then that's it. Yeah, like what's what's your plan? It's just right. to kill all the humans with these exploding eggs. Yeah, and the and the cyclops alien that's like the head of this all making the eggs. 
I guess he's making the eggs, but they don't actually show that. And then he, like, eats a dude, but, like, to what end? And, yeah, no, I mean, obviously... Wouldn't it have been better just to control another dude? Yeah. Can't you just control... It seems like you can control multiple people. Why yeah. don't just fucking raise an army? Yeah, and why the astronaut <laughs> suddenly is physically... Comm- you know, yeah, but anyways. Yeah, three out of five, and that's being pretty generous. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it's not the worst, like... I watched it in the summer on a hot day when I was bored and just sat around and like half paid attention and smoked cigarettes. It was great. It felt like an old Doctor to, to me. It felt like a classic Doctor Who episode with gore. Oh, it's it's because so the, the closest thing I can compare it to because yeah. while we what we, I was thinking about this while we were watching it is there's a it's a second Doctor. There's a there's a serial called Tomb of the Cybermen, mm. which is great because Cybermen are great, but. Their plan doesn't make sense. So what the Cybermen do is they go to this planet and they make this fake tomb and they trap themselves there waiting for more people to come and release them so they can assimilate those people. That doesn't make any fucking sense. Why wouldn't you just go to another planet? (laughs) No, we're going to fucking hide out here, wait for someone to come to us for once. But like, you know, it's... Like I said, if you don't really think about it too much, it's fun. Yeah, that's perfectly perfectly fine it's not offensive and again the goblin theme is a banger so yeah it's not censor yeah i thought censor was a better movie but i'm off the podcast (laughs) bye no censor was pretty at least yeah and well acted i mean it was Anything ruined it for me. So the same reason I can't watch The Sixth Sense anymore, but it is fine. I know, it's fine. So, uh, you seem to have many things to teach us about, what's his name, Tyler Itchinson? Yeah, Technical Tyler. Technical Tyler Itchinson. Yeah, so I have talked about Tech Hitch quite a few times in this show in the past. Uh, I even, I think the first time... I brought it up in a BDMFT, or maybe it was even before we had split that off. I I, I assume it was before. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but I had run through a couple of the early Tech Itch Penetration 12 Inches that I had picked up when I was a kid, and I think given a little bit of a rundown of my history with drum and bass and Tech Itch and all that. So tonight's going to be a much more expanded version of that. But I want to say up front, there are... As far as interviews with Tekich, I spent a lot of time looking and, you know, it's possible I missed some big obvious one, but all I could primarily find were a couple very short interviews. One was in Russia. The other one was in, I don't know, somewhere else in Europe, I think. It was like him before and after doing a gig, uh, DJing, and he talked a little bit uh, about his production style and what he likes and you know all that but there really aren't any kind of like great in-depth interviews that give us a real insight into his history into his process or anything like that so this isn't going to be a a heavy research deep dive like Shinya Tsukamoto or Carcass or anything like that this is says with 45 pages in front of him uh yeah so this is going to be more of an overview of Tekich from the perspective of a listener and a long-time listener at that. And we're really, I'm, my plan is to focus primarily on like, you know, what his records sound like, sort of the differences between them. And we're going to essentially go through the entirety of his primary discography, not including for the most part, all of his side stuff and, and collabs and projects under other names. It's going to be tech itch, uh, 
with a focus on Tekich as drum and bass, not, you know, probably quickly going over the few dubsteps under the same name. Uh, and before we get into all that, I'm going to give a bit of a primer on Tekich just in a very general way and um, get more in-depth into the sort of history of drum and bass because... Uh, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've now heard a fair amount of drum and bass if you listen to BDMFT, <laughs> and I've talked about it a lot, but kind of knowing the history is sometimes interesting, and it was uh, doing the research for this in that sense was uh, a nice reminder of just like how incredibly fertile the United Kingdom is as far as coming up with new genres that change the course of like world dance music just every couple of years. It's really amazing. And they're not the only country that does that, but uh, they really have like you know they from do the it a lot. yeah from the late eighties uh, or really even early eighties, but especially from like the late eighties through two thousand and two, and well even t- into you know later than that because of dubstep, like it's just one big genre after another, and I think a lot of it is that in some ways uh, the UK is kind of like the United States, where because it's a it has such a rich variety of people because it's an island country, so they can't help but like have that because people just are more naturally going to travel through it, and they don't have landlocked borders to keep people out, and they have a rich history of imperialism, so they've gone and you know shoved white culture down a million throats all over the world, but then also brought a lot of stuff back, and so uh, you know especially black culture, and that's not even. That's way too broad of a thing, but, like, many of the countries which they've colonized or been, uh, you know, their empire was part of or adjacent to or whatever in the past, um, you know, those influences from those countries have come back and uh, influenced music out of the UK, and especially dance music. Yeah, I don't know if you guys know, but the B and D and BDMFT actually stands for bass drum. Mm. Mm-hmm. We, we flipped it so no one would would really notice the first, but now we'll peek behind the curtain. So, technical Tyler Itchinson, born in Wisconsin. Yeah, so, okay, so Tech Itch is Mark Caro, uh, or at least that's how I assume it's said, and uh, he's a British drum and bass, jungle, etc. producer. <clears throat> he has his own label called Tech Itch Recordings. He's done a lot of releases on Moving Shadow back when that was still a label, and has releases on Decipher, Freak Recordings, and a couple other labels. Uh, but primarily for his actual work as Tekich, the majority of it is either on his own label, uh, his sub-labels like Penetration, um, and Moving Shadow. So he's the owner of Tekich Recordings, Penetration Records, Ascension Records, also Tech Freak Recordings, which was sort of a very short-lived but uh, somewhat influential skull step. Uh, for lack of a better word, label, which I'll describe in a little bit. Uh, he also goes by the, let's see, these are all other names of his projects. So there's Entity on Ibiza Records, Plasmic Life on Brain Records, which is Busy Bee's label, Psychokinesis on Techich, Secret Methods on Techich, Technical Itch Crew on Back to Basics, Second Movement Promo, uh, the Dude on Rogue Records, and The Third Edge also on Tech Edge Records. That's a lot of names. Yeah, those are... And, I mean, it's pretty common for, um, especially producers who came from the 90s, to have a lot of different names under a lot of different projects. And that's kind of the one of the really crazy things, is that, I mean, he's been releasing music since the early 90s, uh, and is still releasing music and running a successful label. 
in a genre that has waned in popularity massively since its heyday. But he's also been a member of Alpha Proxima with uh, Atoy, uh, Biostasis with Bark, Bart Ickes, Julian Eaton from Ice Minus, uh, Positive Mental Attitude with Decoder, Smut with Sam XL, Sol Invicta with Stephen Carpenter from the Deftones, Richie Wondrous and Dan Ford, Tech Freaks with Dylan, The Spice, uh, I don't have who's in that, but somebody else is in that. And, yeah, so... Uh, Slipknot, Wu-Tang. Yeah, I mean, dude gets around, and uh, most of what he does is good. There's also some questions as as to whether or not Bracken is his recordings or just him doing mastering or engineering or blah, blah, blah. But there's some, there's a bunch of new projects on the sort of revitalized Tekich recordings that if you go in Spotify, they're like tagged as Tekich, even though they don't have that as the artist name. And so there's a lot of questions as to what level of involvement he has, but a lot of it all kind of sounds like Tekich could have produced that. I mean, Spotify is always kind of questionable to begin yeah. with. I know, it's kind of amazing. So, uh, he was based in Bristol for, uh, I think, pretty much the longest time. I don't know if he's a true Bristol native, but we've also talked about Bristol on this show a lot in the past. It's one of the most sort of uh, important hubs of dubstep, but it's also the hub of trip-hop. So, like, Bristol spawned Massive Attack, Tricky, um, Paveralist, the Liberty Sound Records uh, label Punch Drunk, um, what's the brain dance? Yeah, I mean, there's, I'm just, I'm kind of all over the place, but Bristol is one of those cities where, uh, and Portishead, of course, um, it was always kind of the weirder cousin to London. So it's less trendy, I would say, and oftentimes more adventurous and kind of freewheeling and counterculture yeah, not even necessarily that, but just there's like always, I would say in the last 30 years, the intersection of dub music, uh, reggae, stuff like that, like dance hall uh, sound system music and all those things, basically a lot of influence from uh, the Caribbean and other island countries and things like that kind of penetrated the the you know mental landscape there and then has just always continued to influence the artists that come out of there. And so whether it's dubstep, UK based, drum and bass, trip hop, all that, like basically so much of the electronic music that has come out of Bristol has been bass influenced, bass oriented, like had this backdrop of sound system culture and stuff like that. It's not all like that, but a lot of it is like that. And I, I think it's especially to me, it seems that way. Cause that's the kind of stuff I do like. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I've never been to Bristol and I want to go, but it's, it's one of those where I'm sure they have good record stores, but it's going to be like, otherwise it's just a place, yeah, you know? what am I going to do with Bristol? Right, so, um, uh, just a couple other, we're going to go through uh, this last little bit about Tekich, then we're going to jump into more drum and bass history and get back to him, but uh, he's done remixes for Pigeonhead, Warlock, Motion Worker, Diesel Boy, Koshin, Aqua, Aqua Sky, Hive, and the goth well sort of goth synth cyberpunk rock band new metal orgy so yeah you did a remix of opticon with diesel boy oh okay yeah 
I didn't know where you were going with all those tags for a second. <laughs> I know, I know. I was trying to come up with the right way to describe Orgy, and other than just, like, the band that made it hard to get your parents to buy you their CDs by their very <laughs> name alone. I was like, no, Mom, the album's called Candy Ass. The band is called Orgy. I don't like any of those things. I was like, why do I even try? It's a, it's it's just another... It used to mean buffet, Mom. Yeah. It's a cornucopia <laughs> of sex. So, yeah. So that's a, that's just the briefest primer on Tekich. Uh, so what is drum and bass? This is the guy at the bass and they got the drum. Yeah. And it's do 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 so, do 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 No. Wrong and correct. Uh, that was a drum and a bass. Yeah, it's so brutal because I remember when I was a kid and I got into drum and bass, you know, in America where we're like always a decade behind dance music culture anyways... You know, my I'm I was still I was like thirteen. Hold on, we have Skrillex, thank you. <laughs> uh, I remember being like thirteen ish and and my parents, you know, friends would be over or whatever and they're like, Oh Frank, what are you up to? I'm like, I'm really into drum and bass. They're like, Oh, is that like just like a bass guitar and a drum set? And I'm like, No. You couldn't be more wrong. Um, actually... Yeah, except for more of just that frustration of like being a kid who's into weird stuff and having no ability to like I'm like, you don't understand. Cool people in Britain do drugs and they listen to it and dance fast. And they're like, okay, I'm sorry I asked. It's still my life trying to explain my weird shit to people. Yeah. So, uh, drum and bass is a genre of electronic dance music characterized by fast break beats, 165 to 185 BPM. With what a heavy bass. What for? Beats per minute. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, with heavy bass and sub-bass lines, samples, and synthesizers. Originally, it was primarily a UK thing, starting in the early uh, to mid nineteen nineties. Wow, it was like Siri was reading a Google Wikipedia page to me. Yeah, I think that's half Wikipedia, half me just shorthanding Wikipedia. Uh, so one of the big things in drum and bass, there used to be a lot of MCs. Like that was a part of uh, the live DJ experience. I don't live in England uh, or anywhere else where there's a lot of drum and bass anymore. I don't know that that's still a very big thing. I mean, even to this day, like, I have some records that have come out in the last five years that might have an MC on a track or two, but it used to be, like, whenever you bought, like, live mixtapes or anything like that, there's always an MC on it. What does MC stand for, Dick Fetty? Uh, Microphone Cinema. Master Chief? Yeah, Master Chief. Milk and Cereal? (laughs) Uh, so drum and bass is a genre that came out of jungle, which came out of hardcore breakbeat, uh, which came out of like acid house. And it's basically the evolution of music that all was derived out of new production techniques that came from new technology samplers being the big one. So it was, you know, there's always, there's been turntablism since sort of the birth of hip hop and that increasingly became a valid artistic expression but you know once you had samplers it was like you could instead of having to use like turntablism and setups and all do that kind of stuff to layer and pile up break beats you could just sample them and then you could sequence the samples and have them play in a way that was much easier than having to like you know manually do this that and the other thing how technical uh yeah so like these genres basically just kind of Again, like 1990 to 2000 saw so many rapid evolutions. And most of these genres all happened at the same time. So you listen to early 
uh, like Prodigy's first album, The Experience. So some of it is like quintessential breakbeat hardcore. And you can normally tell because there's a lot of like piano lines and stuff like I'm going to have that stuck in my head, but... It's like I was there. <laughs> yeah. So you have that on top of the, you know, breakbeats and all the rest of that. But then Jungle was, like, a little bit harder, a little bit scarier sometimes. You know, you get some more heavy synth stuff. But then there's also a lot of, like, really pretty Jungle tracks. But the drums can have a lot of this... Like, the, they're not just breakbeats. There's also program drums, and there's all this shifting and time warping. But then drum and bass was like, oh, we're even harder than that. And so, like, the bass and the drums, they were like, you know, it was more more of those. But, yeah. But it's, <laughs> it's tough, though, because even to this day, I know that many people could be like, that's this or that's that or that's the other. But I think a lot of this is like half of it's just music industry always trying to identify things, even though things can actually be like sort of overlap in genres and shit that I would have said 10 years ago. Oh, that's a jungle track. Now I'm like, is that a breakbeat hardcore track? Or, you know, I'm like, that's a drum bass song. I'm like, is this actually jungle? And I'm not an expert. Uh, Says at, the man who's got more made up genres in his iTunes list than anyone else alive. They're real genres. Um, but yeah, there's like a, I have this mix CD that's called the history of hardcore, but I'm like, this is jungle. <laughs> but then I'm like, is it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's brutal, so... Um, but, you know, there were just, like, a, an insane amount of artists. A lot of them, young people coming and going pretty quick in the scenes, but other people who, you know, especially got in in that early 90s era and stuck around, most of them eventually became drum and bass producers. Like, for... There are people who are like, I like this 96 sound. Even though it's 2020, I'm going to make it sound like it's 96. And they shoot for a specific thing. But for the people that were around when it was happening, uh, a lot of them kind of changed with the times. And Mark Caro was one of those uh, people. And he and his uh, musical partner, Darren Beale, who went on primarily to record his decoder, they did a lot of stuff early on together. They both had a lot of uh, early jungle releases um, under various names. And I used to think that Orca, I guess Orca is a Darren Beale project, but I swore that Tekich was part of it. I don't know. But the one thing I'll say before I move on is it's been interesting because as these genres try to, people attempt to codify them more and we get further and further away from when these records came out and were wildly abused by DJs, the amount of these records available just increases or decreases rather exponentially and their prices have reached like insane numbers. Um, you know, for anything that's remotely off the beaten path, but also been like, Oh, that's a great song. Fucking forget about it. It's 50 bucks or more on discogs. And I remember being in high school, spending hours and hours and hours looking at these secondhand record stores that had huge distro lists online from the UK. And it was still brutal with the exchange rate, but it was like, you know, Oh yeah, this three year old, jungle 12 inch that's like three three pounds or whatever and i'm like i fucking wish i had spent that money that i didn't have then to have those records now yeah, it's almost like i get to hear you complain about this every couple months <laughs> yeah so <clears throat> and then you buy a shitload of drum and bass anyway that's true but uh well yes so <laughs> so the style is built around uh Funk and rock and roll breaks from artists like James Brown to Al Green, Marvin Gaye, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, and other 
black musicians primarily. The most famous break of all time is the Amen or the Amen or the uh, Amen. It depends on how quickly you say it and what inflection you use. You know, people, when they end a prayer, can say, like, Amen, or they can say Amen. Uh, I call it the Amen break because I think it sounds better, even though it's really the Amen break. And I just... Sounds like Amens with the way you say it. I know, but I've always said it that way, so it's, like, really hard. I'm going to slip into that for most of this episode when I talk about it, but just know that. I want to talk a little bit about this break because it's pretty important. Um... The Amen break is a drum break that has been widely sampled in popular music. Uh, It comes from the 1969 track Amen Brother by the soul group The Winstons, released as the B-side of the 1969 single Color Him Father. The drum break lasts about seven seconds and was performed by Gregory Coleman. Uh, With the rise of hip-hop in the 1980s, the break was widely sampled. In the 1990s, it became a staple of drum and bass and jungle music. It has been used in thousands of tracks of many genres, making it one of the most sampled recordings in history. The Winstons received no royalties for its use. Band leader Richard Lewis Spencer said it was unlikely Coleman, who died homeless and destitute in 2006, realized the impact he had on music. Spencer condemned its use as plagiarism early on, but later said it was flattering. Uh, the Winstons were a m- multiracial soul group from Washington, D.C., who played throughout the southern United States. They were led by Richard Lewis Spencer, and in early 1969, they were uh, recorded the single Color Him Father in Atlanta. For the B-side, they recorded an instrumental based on the gospel song Amen and a guitar riff uh, by Curtis Mayfield. Curtis Mayfield? Yeah. I know him. Uh, the result was Amen Brother, which took 20 minutes to compose. Uh, though Color Him Father was uh, to become a top 10 R&B hit and won a Grammy Award, Amen Brother received little notice at the time of its release. The Winston struggled to secure gigs in the South with their multiracial composition and disbanded in 1970. So about at 1 minute and 26 seconds into the song, uh, the other musicians stop playing and drummer Gregory Coleman performs a four-bar drum, drum break. For two bars, he plays the previous beat. In the third, he delays a snare hit. In the fourth, he leaves the first beat empty, following with a syncopated pattern, an early crash cymbal. I'm going to now play that. And Okay, thank God, because my eyes glazed over. Yeah, so the thing is that's like, to understand again, we've I've talked about it on here before, but the way that sampling works is, you know, typically you're taking a sample that's going to last the appropriate amount of time. It's going to be sequenced in a sequencer on the computer or whatever, but as long as it lines up, if you're trying to make a track that has a consistent BPM and like four by, you know, four, four measure and all that kind of stuff, you know, you're going to take a sample that fits with this. This, this is it. This is, um, and so this Amen has been sampled and then chopped up and reconfigured a million one, one ways. And I've talked about it on the show probably 30, 40 times over the last however many years we've been doing this. At least. 45 years. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it basically comes up in most of my drum and bass discussions because I love it, and most of the drum and bass I like uses the Amen as one of the primary um, drum samples, and artists that don't use it typically are less good to me, and that's that's a lot of drum and bass that doesn't fuck with it. So, so what you're saying is you're a Christian. Yes.
Yeah, so I mean, those four bars are some of the most influential drum playing in the entirety of the history of popular music. Yeah, I can already tell you, it hits a very specific memory center of a very specific song. I can't tell you what that song is. It's probably a Fatboy Slim song. Could be N.W.A.'s Straight Outta Compton. Ooh, should we hear it used in that very same song? Yes. <laughs> no. No, I don't think we will. Straight out of Compton, crazy motherfucker named Ice Cube. From the gang called Niggas With Attitudes. When I'm called off, I got a sawed off. Squeeze the trigger and bodies are hauled off. You two boy, if you fuck with me. The police are gonna have to come and get me off your ass. That's how I'm going out. For the punk motherfuckers that's showing out. Niggas start the mumble, they wanna rumble. Mix them in, cook them in a pot like gumbo. Going off on the motherfucker like that. With a gang, that's pointed at your ass. Yeah, so you can hear it, you know, pitched down and just one bar of it looped over and over in the background of that song. And uh, lots of hip-hop was produced that way, and of course hip-hop had an influence, a pretty huge influence on drum and bass, and, you know, we talked to, about the branching of Electro and Disco Boogie and all that stuff, and obviously the influence of black culture and black music in the United States into just like honky music in the United States was a big deal, but it also crossed the ocean both into the UK, Germany and other places. And the genres that were, you know, a lot of it was about like black expression and, uh, inner city living and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, then eventually were interpolated and, you know, recontextualized into the experience of the, uh, you know, British white club goer through, you know. Interpolated. Yeah. It's a good word. Thank you. But anyways, yeah, so you can hear it there, and it shows up in about a million other things. And so if you go on Who Sampled It or a website like that and just put in Amen Brother, you'll have an infinitely long list of things. Here we go, guys. Next two episodes. <laughs> I'm looking it up now. All right, so the... A lot of what we're going to talk about, too, in this series is what I think of as, at least for me, in part because it was the time when I was most invested in drum and bass and then a little bit of time on either side of it, uh, sort of this golden era in some ways. And Tekich especially and other artists on Moving Shadow, and I think I think the general zeitgeist at the time, or, or maybe the meta, however you want to put it, allowed for a particular style of song structure in drum and bass. There were always artists that didn't engage in this from the very beginning, and especially now, a lot of what we talk about with UVB 76 and things like that, they don't necessarily follow these song structures, but... We can't go one episode without fucking mentioning UVB 76. <laughs> it is a drum and bass episode, so at least it's warranted. Yeah, it's always warranted on Motel Hell, thank you. Sure. So what I think of as like a typical D&B song structure, and people can argue with me, but I, I think this is a fair assessment for a lot of it, you know, again, say 1998 to 2003. You got your is, drums, you got your bass. You ain't wrong there, partner. Uh, but the big thing is that structure-wise, it's like a minute and a half to two minutes of just the lead into the song. So this allows your DJ to mix the song in, you know, and without already being at the drop and all the rest of that stuff. And it's a lot of, especially with somebody like Tekich building atmospheric synths, you know, maybe it gets like pretty heavy, pretty quick. Like the ruckus has a lot of just like already being like, Ooh, you know, it's getting big. 
but then you get your drop. And so, you know, it all builds up until you get your first drop. And then when that happens, typically, if the drums are going to come in harder, this is the time they're going to happen. If the amen's going to come in, this is when the amen comes in. You might have other versions of these breaks showing up before that, but it'll be like really the big, like, fuck you moment. And we played a little bit of that kind of stuff on the show before, but in this series, I'm hoping I can really kind of highlight, like, that's the amen. This is the drop. Like, here it is, clear as day. So you get the drop around 132 minutes. Uh, you know, drums get complicated, bass gets heavier, synths gets scarier. It's all like, oh, it's all there. I'm sorry for a second. I thought you'd be like, the synths get synthier. Yeah. Uh, and then things start to sort of, um, you know, chill out a little bit and you get working into the second drop, which is typically around four to five minutes. Uh, you do your second drop. A lot of times it might even get crazier than that, uh, than the first one. Some, again, like artists that I think aren't that great, they'll just basically have two of the same drops over and over. Uh, it can be really helpful for mixing because by the time it's warm working into the second drop, but before that you're mixing into the next song. But if you're a home listener like me, most of the time, uh, if they don't significantly switch it up, you're just like, okay, here we are again. I heard this part the first time. But then you have all your your drop, the second drop, and then the uh, sort of post-again part that allows for more mixing out. And, you know, it's important to keep in mind that for the most part, this is a genre, like, created and evolved around club. So, you know, the club-going experience, four DJs, you know, everything was pressed on wax. And I'm sure it wasn't the first genre to do it, but it was certainly the one that I think got a lot of attention for at its height. One of the things that was huge was dub plates. So uh, people would get acetates made, which were basically records that were uh, designed to last for only a, a certain amount of plays before they would essentially, like the grooves would wear out or they would degrade to the point where you couldn't play them. But artists could produce new tracks uh, they wouldn't have to wait for a full production of their record to come out. They would go get a dub plate pressed of it, and then they could have like that song on this one dub plate, and then they could play that before it was ever actually released. And this was a practice that went on for, especially at the height of my interest in the genre, all the time. So like you would hear these DJ mixes, you know, on online through Real Player or get the mixtapes and stuff Ooh. from the yeah, you're fucking. We're going to oh. get into that in a second. Oh, no. Yeah, but, you know, this is, like, all pre-YouTube. This is very early file sharing. So most of the time, it was still mixtapes of live sets, like big um, event nights for labels and shit like that. I have a Renegade Hardware one that's um, just four, four different artists from Renegade Hardware all DJing for, like, an hour to two hours per tape. And in these sets, you would hear dub plates of new stuff. And then that shit wouldn't come out for like two fucking years. So if it was like for me, if it was a track I loved and a mix I liked, listen, I mix over and over and over. And by the time the track comes out, it's like, oh, and that was always one of the things, too, that was tough was like if you weren't a producer and one of the bigger people and in with the other DJs, uh, drum and bass in general was really brutal because for like regular people who were just trying to DJ drum and bass and had access to only like the records as they came out, you always were at least a year behind, if not, you know, more what was actually new and being played by the bigger name DJs. Like they had access to all these tracks that you could only get if you had the dub plates. Now the zoomers just go up on stage and press play on their iPhones. Kind of. Yeah. And most 
I mean, lots and lots of clubs don't really even do turntable setups anymore because it's harder to maintain than just doing all digital setups and, you know, Honestly. lots of people just play with Ableton and blah, blah, blah. But the times they are changing. I don't like it. But now the rest of this episode is just going to be how the beard and the dick feel old. Yeah. Okay. Uh, drum and bass. So we've, we've, we covered a lot of it uh, as far as just general overview. I want to talk a little bit about some of the subgenres of drum and bass because some of this will come up over the course. There are a lot of subgenres, and some of them have their own special genre tags and discogs, so it makes them real, and other ones are the kinds of things that people argue about on Drum and Bass Arena or Dogs on Acid or whatever. But no, this is Drum and Seagull Bass. It's totally different. Yeah, no. I mean, it's everything from Jump Up to Clown Step to Skull Step to Hard Style to Drum Core to, uh, yeah... Sorry. <laughs> what clown step that yeah. catch your ear yeah that was more of a mocking term to like a certain style of like shitty breakdowns and whatever but then skull step just sounds like the edgier side it is it is actually exactly that uh, a lot of russians eastern europeans uh practice in the tradition and we're gonna jump into that so I sure are right now god damn it i should have said that <laughs> so uh i'm just gonna give like try to give the smallest little descriptions so spinoffs include or micro genres or whatever. There's breakcore. Breakcore is everything from artists like Abel Kane to Venetian snares. Uh, and the definition of what is breakcore can change, but sometimes it's more IDM influenced. Sometimes it's more noise. Sometimes it's more like hardcore techno. Uh, it's oftentimes less dance floor focused and more like abrasive head music. Or if you are really into breakcore, sure you can dance with it, but whatever. Breakcore is its own thing now, basically. Crossbreed, which is a much newer sort of genre that is a deliberate attempt to, to meld hardcore techno and drum and bass. Uh, I think a lot of it gets very samey, but it can be really good. Outside agency do a lot of crossbreed, and that shit rules for the most part. Switch Technique is another really good artist. There are some other artists, but... It's also a movement that seems to kind of have like a quick, oh, this is a cool thing, and then the, the kind of got done to death, and then five years later, it's sort of over. It's still happening, of course, but it you know, yeah. it peaked quickly. So Raga Jungle, which is um, you know still a lot of focus on MC stuff and other things like that, and more like regular jungle. There's Hard Step, which I can't even really understand the difference between that <laughs> and other stuff, but. It's a particular sound. There's Dark Step, which is basically Techich's home. Uh, it's essentially scary Tech Step with Amens. And uh, there's Tech Step, which uh, examples of that would be Kamal and Rob Data, although they could also be sometimes uh, Neurofunk, Staka and Skynet, TB. Uh, there's a, tech Step is one of the bigger subgenres, and it's one of the ones that's lasted the longest. It's still, I think, pretty profitable and popular. So you get sci-fi atmosphere, compressed breaks, but typically not as much of an emphasis on really uh, heavy drum programming. Uh, there's neurofunk, which is the even like sort of more techno-influenced, even funkier side. Uh, Ed Rush and Optical are the most famous of it. Black Sun Empire can be that. They've also done a lot of tech step. Um, I think that most of the time the drum programming in Neurofunk is fucking boring and it's like the worst parts of techno and drum and bass together. So 
I always think I'm going to like it. I try so many times. And sometimes the synths will be really good, but everything else is just like, I could be listening to Techage. Uh, there's Intelligent DMB, which is sort of like Ambient DMB. Omnitrio is the one I always think of. Again, because I am more Moving Shadow focused as far as my experience with drum and bass. But, you know, sort of that like smarter at home music. You know, maybe you get to like touch a tit or two and it's not just like groping somebody in the dark. Uh, drill and bass, which is kind of break core. Maybe it's a different thing. Square Pusher is one of the primary people identified with this. Also some Aphex Twin. Is it even a real genre? One could argue or ask. And then finally, <laughs> Skull Step. Your which... latest is really coming out in this episode. No, no, it's not even like that at all. I think it's just like, there's a lot of these things that they, over the years, picked up increasing traction or validity, allegedly, as, as genre tags. But it's like, they're just like more bullshit terms. Like drill and bass is a really cool sounding genre name. Like absolutely. But is that, is there a real way to define it other than like a couple tracks from like two Are they years? playing a bass with a drill? True. Uh, that's noise. So, yeah. and then skull step, which is uh lime wax is probably one of the main people for it. Gyne audio. Um, there's a lot of other guys. And like I said, uh, a lot of Eastern European, stuff falls into this realm and it's uh i would say it's not as big as it was current value um counter-strike and i think that a lot of artists that were doing dark step or tech step some of them fell into this for a while when it kind of got big and then it kind of came back there were it was a uh, scroll step was a also a genre name that like started off as like a fuck you by people on the dogs on acid forum and to like this style of harder and harder dark step and then those nerds in dark step embraced it further and we're like yeah we're calling it skull step now so fuck <laughs> you and i think there was like a compilation called the skull step manifesto and it's just like a lot of it's it, just it all just sounds so edgy yeah well it's that plus it's like that internet nerd like and it's just a bunch of fucking honkies and uh yeah so, but there's some good stuff, and also Techage definitely falls into this area as far as production style goes, and we'll, we'll chart that. You know, all all of this stuff is happening with drum and bass, all this evolution, all these micro-genres, all these things are, like, you know, popping off at the same time as trip-hop being huge, big beat being huge, hard house being huge, IDM being huge, trance, techno... I mean, like, it's just insane, like, in, in between 1992 and 1998, the amount of genres that, especially, like, went from nothing to being world stage players, you know, Massive Attack is a huge band, Chemical Brothers, The Prodigy, yeah, like, yeah. these are all people who have, like, they do stadium tours, uh, or at least were at some point, um, some of them have had more lasting power, but, you know, innovations and in genre building that have gone on uh, to just have like a permanent uh, change in the landscape of dance music, so UK is pretty cool. The root sandstorm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fucking stuck in your head, isn't it? Yeah. I want everyone to know that I totally derailed you just by mentioning the root sandstorm. It's a good song. It's a great song. There's even more of a breakdown I could give as far as like what is a Reese baseline and other aspects of this but I don't think we need that for the purposes of this episode there's a lot of good um, you know between music database websites like Discogs and Rate Your Music or even just checking Wikipedia 
one can find out a lot about these, you know, the kind of like academic side and quote unquote of what is drum and bass, but most of that shit theory behind it. Not, not exactly that, but, uh, that stuff's interesting, but you know, at the end of the day, just listen to some records and you'll kind of get a feel for like, Oh, this is drum and bass. Uh, it shouldn't be that hard. And you're about to hear a fucking shitload of it in the next couple episodes. So, uh, so for me, drum and bass, you know, switching over to sort of my personal history with the genre and with tech in general, I first heard it unknowingly with the Wipeout Excel soundtrack, which we've discussed more than yeah. once on this show. Yeah, we have. It's a fucking banger, dude. It's Underworld, it's Chemical too, Brothers, yeah. Fluke. Yeah, it's wonderful. And then Fotex on there with one of his most, probably like his heaviest and we're very close to it. And one of his most unusual songs ever called The Third Sequence. That is a fucking masterpiece of a track. And being nine years old, living in Kansas, having no clubs, no club, you know, just, just being a little kid, I was like, oh, I like this. 90s were weird, man. 90s, early 2000s, because, like, movies, games were just coming out with these crazy fucking soundtracks. Yeah. I don't get that anymore. Well, and I mean, like, Wipeout XL, again, not to spend too long on this, because we did talk about this in depth in the past, but the game was, like, produced by a British studio with support from Sony using the Designers Republic for, like, graphics and design elements who designed the majority of, like, Warp Records stuff for fucking 20 years. Uh, And then the soundtrack was fleshed out with basically all cutting-edge electronic artists. And the Prodigy's on it, too. So it's, like, two classic tracks by the Kimmel Brothers, two classic tracks by the prodigy you've got fotech source directors on the soundtrack version but not the end game like i mean they fucking knew their shit and uh and so yeah so that like and a lot of games at this point you know back in that early playstation era man it was just games were not as expensive to develop and uh you know especially electronic artists were willing to like say is this the cutting edge and jump in on soundtracks so like wipeout 3 Um, at that point, trance was clearly like the big winner as far as popular dance music goes. So it's all just soundtracked primarily by Sasha and Digweed. And I love progressive trance. So I was like, this fucking rules, but. And I'd argue that video game soundtracks that were like that, not just like, cause you know, I guess, I guess a lot of video games nowadays are much more almost movie-esque experiences, but, uh, were more influential than movie soundtracks cause it's like. I'm not gonna watch a movie for fucking every second of the day. One movie every second of the day as much as I can. But you play any anybody that we grew up with. You play fucking Superman by Goldfinger. What's the funny fucking Tony Hawk? Yeah. Immediately. But, well, and right, and again, like at the advent of CD media uh, in gaming, you could now put like regular yeah. songs on in games because they could just be on the CD, and that's the whole thing. Is like the Wipeout XL game is just track one on, on what is otherwise a, just a compilation album. But I would say that in general, the '90s were a big deal because that was the era of like original soundtracks not scores but soundtracks mm-hmm. going gold and platinum as albums so whether it was the clueless soundtrack or the batman and robin soundtrack or the uh pulp fiction soundtrack like you know these soundtracks were they had uh zeitgeist pop culture clout and you know video game soundtracks were 
occupying a much smaller space, but for people like us who were playing a lot of video games, they, I mean, I had my Dangerous Mind CD soundtrack right next to my Webhot Excel. Yeah. You know, uh, they all had big impact on me. And then really the big one, and again, we've talked about this on here before, was Grand Theft Auto 3. So Grand Theft Auto 3, like the Grand Theft Auto series has always had good music, but 3 was like where it took it to the next level. And, 3 is where they took the whole franchise well, right. like and that's, the company to it's the next a, level. Yeah, it's yeah. essentially like the first real game. It's it's the beginning of the dynasty, and they had many excellent radio stations with actual real good music that you could want to listen to, but they had MSX FM, which was Moving Shadow Radio, which yeah. was essentially the 01.1 mix CD. So Moving Shadow is was one of the biggest drum and bass labels and hugely fucking influential because they had been around since essentially the breakbeat hardcore early jungle days and then pretty successfully transitioned into uh, all the genres as they took off in the mid and late 90s and then wound up like doing soundtrack work for Hollywood movies, supplying stuff for tons of video game soundtracks. Uh, there was a game called Roll Cage that they did a couple soundtracks for. It was like Wipeout XL and... Um, and then they, you know, they did music for, they did this um, Grand Theft Auto 3 radio station. And one of the things that they did, again, back at the height of CDs, another dead medium, was that they would put out these label samplers that were mixed by the head of the label, DJ Timecode. And they would do two a year. They did this for like four, I think they did it consistently for four years. And then they dropped out and I started only doing one a year but they're originally like five bucks you know or three bucks something like that three pounds and it was an hour's worth of mix cd of drum and bass it was all artists on the, the label it was stuff from upcoming albums and this that and the other and you know they were cheap and it had the whole gamut of styles too that was on moving shadow and this particular mix because of both nostalgia but also just like being some of the one of the best years for the label it starts off with this incredible Omni Trio song. It goes into this incredible Aqua Sky song, and then from there you get everything from Share Khan, Dom and Roland, Techich Twice, uh, Easy Rollers. It's just like all fucking gold, and it's uh, I think it's all kilobytes one era stuff. But I heard this shit, and we used to just—I mean, I'd have the sleepovers, and we'd all just sit, pick cars, you know, and take turns driving around the city just listening to this fucking soundtrack because we're like, this is the greatest shit. Oh, yeah, no. I remember bopping to it as I'm driving around the BF Injector fucking lighting up uh, sex workers with Newsy. Yeah. So I go into the manual back when games still came with those and they have, you know, information about the different radio stations. This whole episode is just being, just making me feel like, oh, back in my day. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, but you know, it's partially why I'm going into such detail here because my intro into Tekich is just like a story of everything dead and everything <laughs> that's changed and like, a, next we're going to go to Blockbuster and, <laughs> and load up the Napster. Pretty close. We're going to talk about CD now soon. So. Oh. <laughs> so they have this information about the Moving Shadow website. My so knees I, hurt right now. I go to the website. My <laughs> knees always hurt now. But I go to the website and they have, you know, again, because this is uh, uh, 2000. So Grand Theft Auto 3 released October 23rd, 2001. So this is late 2001. Side note, I think that was the first video game I remember trying to go buy and no one had any copies. Yeah. It was like hard to find. And luckily for me, 
which I, I'm sure you had a very similar experience. My mom, even though she's, like, the kind of person who, like, doesn't watch gory things, doesn't, like, she'll watch a radar movie and someone will curse and she'll be like, oh, nice language. I'm like, mom, it's a radar movie. What do you want? Like, <laughs> this is what you fucking signed up for. But, um, never, never gave a shit about, like, what I watched, really, like, what I bought. We'd be at, like, Funko Land or Walmart or GameStop when it eventually came about and the person would be like, you know this game's rated, uh, M for Mature, right? And my mom would be like, whatever here's the money just give us the game what do you like what yeah no my uh my mom the only time she ever cared was because they made her come buy the game for me i know the story yeah yeah and so i went to buy fallout tactics and you know i went to the it was back when it was it was either electronics boutique or it was babbage's in the cherry hill mall Babbage's in here tonight. But, uh, again, my knees, they ache. And so, I mean, this is like, I must have been... That was a Vine reference for all you youngins. Yeah, Jesus. It's like a Vine referencing older things that were 10 years older than the Vine. And the Vine's been dead for, what, five years? But, yeah, so this is Fallout Tactics. So this was probably around the same time. And, I mean, I'm like, I got to be in my early teens. And I had already... Like, I think I had beaten the game visiting my buddy out in California, and I was like, I want to own a copy myself. And I played the first two Fallouts, so, like, yes, I know they're full of drugs and extreme violence and all the other great things that make Fallout Fallout. And I go there, and they're like, you, you're you not 18, you can't buy this, it's mature. And I was like, are you kidding me? I was like, like, are you really being for real? They're like, sorry, we can't sell it to you. I was like, okay, so, you know, my mom comes to pick me up. I was like, you have to come into the mall and buy this game for me. And she was like, if my son wants to buy these games... He can buy these games. Don't ever do this to me again. I, I can't. I don't have time for this. And I'm like <laughs> walked out, and those teens were like, "What the fuck? We're just, you know." I'm sure they're told because they sold somebody Grand Theft Auto Three, and their mom came in yeah. screaming. But yeah, my uh, my parents had faith that they had done a good enough job that I wasn't going to be brainwashed by violence in video games and think that that was acceptable in the real world because we don't live in Looney Tunes. Like, what the they fuck? They were half right. Yeah, I mean, I became a drug addict, but I don't think that... It was more just like video games were a fun thing to do while I did drugs. It wasn't... I played video games, so I, I did drugs. I think that's pretty universal. Right. So, especially with Grand Theft Auto. Until you get too many drugs, and then you gotta sell the video games to get more. <laughs> yeah. And then later you rebuy them because you got sober and you miss your old games. Yeah. So, we got a little bit of a tangent there, but... Um, that's what this podcast is about. It is true. So... So, so I go to the website, I download their real player stream they have of this same mix. And Guys, so, I want you to message me on our Instagram. Your old crusty feet. No. Oh. So let us guess your age by your feet. No, I want to see what your real player fucking, like what your real player looked like, right? Because like you can customize your real player. You're thinking player. of Winamp. Was it Winamp? Yeah. And that's after real player. Oh, God. Real player was like... Whatever is lower than 128 by 4, do that <laughs> math. So, uh, what is it, like 26 kilobytes per second, like, bitrate? It was, it was like, streaming uh, YouTube at the worst quality with, like, uh, wax paper over it. And I, I can remember watching Ball with the Ball. Like, it was, like, a 30... No, it was, like, a three-second clip, and I had downloaded it from Kid Rock's website, and I was like, the internet. Crazy, and it, I mean, it took like so long. You know, this was fifty six k back when like the birds were still chewing on the telephone lines. And back everything. when we had to jerk off to Newgrounds dress up games. 
<laughs> that that was even more advanced. Like I had the internet early, which just meant I had to see the most like brutal and basic. It's that Simpsons joke where the comic book guy is trying to download that nude picture and it's just taking forever and then eventually Homer's ad you pops mean in. Captain Janeway? Yeah, that's right. And yeah. uh oh, so that was my life and we were at finally at a point where like you know people were uploading full albums as real player streams from websites but i mean the quality was it it was like atrocious but that was all you had so and i'm and it's i'm on these shitty little speakers and the whole thing and we would you know put that on and we would play jack ryan radio and we would i was just but also on the website, they had disc one of Kilobytes Volume 2, which is mixed by Tekich. And basically half of that album is just either Tekich songs or uh, Tekich and Company, you know. And um, it was kind of a bit of a, uh, a celebration, um, like a parade. I can't think of the term, but um, a little bit of a masturbatory tooting his own horn, I would say, in some ways. But it's also like... Pretty much everything on that is a banger. And I heard that CD and it blew me away. And the other really cool thing about the Moving Shadow website was they had pictures of every record they'd ever put out. And they had this like well curated, like pretty good Web 2.0 website where it was like you could easily look through and they had like some notes about it. Maybe there'd be a review linked to it for the more recent stuff. They would have the tracks. So it was like I could see these very small postage stamp sized. You guys probably don't know what postage stamps are either, but um you know fuck you boomer <laughs> yeah these these jpegs of you know these album covers you know that are 12 inch records normally and you know i can read the little details and just imagine in my head and it was like they had already it was such a long lasting uh and and uh had such a big discography it was just like a playground for my mind and around this time if i hadn't already gotten into it i was on discogs because i've been on discogs since like 2000 and one or two so i guess it was shortly after this i got on the discogs and i could see these poorly entered releases of like you know drum and bass and it's just it was like there were so few ways to easily access this stuff and uh you know there wasn't Bandcamp, there wasn't spotify there wasn't youtube you basically had to rely on secondhand record stores uploading 30 second real player clips or 30 second mp3s a little bit later on occasionally getting a decent rip off of Napster, <clears throat> shit like that. And that's that's how it started for me. It was like, okay, Moving Shadow has a web store, but everything costs like $20 to import, whether it's a CD or a 12-inch because it's coming from the UK, and the uh, exchange rate is so brutal. And then, or I can't get it. Like, you know what I mean? There's just nowhere that sells it. And, you know, back in the day of big CD stores, you could still find some stuff. Moving Shadow is big enough that occasionally their stuff might show up at a regular store, but mostly I had to find ways to special order it. And so that took me to uh, CD Now and other pre-Amazon CD-based websites. And if you guys if, if you guys are under the age of 30 and you don't know what Napster is, it's LimeWire's grandpa. Yeah. So Napster was the original peer-to-peer. I got uh, The Dreamer. And I got the virus. I think I only got like half of the virus, but that was still something. And uh, which are early Techage songs, which God willing, we're going to get to before hour <laughs> two fucking tonight. But um, I mean, we're about to jump into the actual music. But yeah, I mean, it was just like, 
I'm like, I know this exists. I know these records are real. Like, he's released many records. Already at this point, it's 2001. Tekich has released 20 records as Tekich alone, <laughs> not including all of his early aliases and all that stuff. So I can see that it's there. And I'm also, because I can see, oh, Kilobytes Volume 2, it's a mix CD. And then it has the whole track listing of all these artists. And I'm like, well, I like every song on here. So then I'm on the earliest version of Discogs or just Google searching and doing all these things trying to find this. And this takes me to Drum and Bass Arena, which probably I found a year or two later, which was like a big, it was a forum. It was uh, a big like hype machine for Drum and Bass. So they would, you know, artists would post like full or partial songs on there. They would have uh, people in the forums would train spot mixes and try to identify tracks that hadn't come out yet and all this stuff or, or DJs would post their mixes. So I got involved in that. Dogs on Acid always was a little bit too, everybody's an asshole, uh, and also uh, because it was derivative of Bad Company, I'm pretty sure, and their record label and whatever, and I was never a big Bad Company fan. Not Bad Company by Bad Company on the oh, album Bad, bad Company, company yeah. but Bad Company <laughs> UK, which was the thing they had to later change, but anyways, that was never because my spot. Bad, because of the band Bad Company, Correct. wrote the song Bad Company, which was on the album. Correct, Bad, bad company. company, yeah. The other thing was that Tekich himself had a, a label website for Tekich Recordings. And Tekich Recordings, uh, they also had some samples. They had samples of his album Focused, or Jesus, Diagnostics, rookie mistake. And uh, <laughs> you're fucking blown it, Dick yeah, Fetty. And some other of the more recent records. And it was all just like this super brutal. It was like getting a treasure map. And I didn't even know really what the treasure was per se. It was like I had an idea. But it was just like the idea that someday I could find this stuff and get it and have it. And, you know, now with my reckless spending and adult income, I've basically bought all the most of the good Tekich records from a very long span. So all of them? No, but a lot of them. And, you know, other than the earliest ones, which are outrageously expensive, but it was rough. And so what I could not find was primarily like Tekich directly. But I, I, it's just funny, like. The reason we're covering this topic is that for me, this, all this shit was like, this was my life. Like, you know, not just Tekich, but this kind of dance music, electronic music, and this obsessive searching for and trying to find out about new music and I artists and all this. I was actually thinking about how much more I used to be into doing that sort of thing back in the day. And it, like, I, you know, also with the advent of the internet and like, some of it lost its mystique because it's like, you know, you go looking for a new artist and you'd end up on some random fucking website, listen to some band or some artist. And you're like, this is really fucking good. And you try to find stuff from like, I, I totally fucking get that. Shit. Yeah. And you know, again, like this is happening when I'm in eighth grade. So yeah. this, this is eighth grade for me. This is this birthday. I get Grand Theft Auto three and I get Metal Gear Solid two. And I have like an allowance that's maybe 10, I don't even think I had an allowance. I think I was making babysitting money at this point. So I had like, you know, a couple dollars in my pocket some weeks. It's a good fucking birthday. Yeah, I didn't have uh, a bank account or anything. So I always still had to just give my cash to my mom and be like, can I use your card to buy the Wecker from the UK? And she'd be like, are you sure then I can steal my credit card information? I'm like, I don't know. I ordered the wave pants from Brooklyn. Just a baby. Yeah, you know. But, and again, like that, that is sort of the difference is like now, like you hear about something and you can listen to it 17 different ways by the time you like let out a fart. Again, back then it was like, I could, 
I could maybe find some obscure record store online that had a 10 second sample of a song. And I'm like, I think I love that. But that was as, as far as I could go. So it was still easy to maintain some of the mystique. Like you could get the info, but you couldn't get the experience because you couldn't hear the music. Cause at the end of the day, these are fucking records, right? And, uh, the way I found Tekich and was able to first get it was through diesel boy. So diesel boy is like, one of he's easily the most famous u.s drum and bass dj of all time uh he was early i mean i think he's been going since the early 90s and uh as a really young kid and he's also an incredibly talented dj more than most like he's he's one of those people that doesn't just make isn't just like good at going from record to record or just picking all the big hits or anything like that like he he has like mixes with narrative and uh he was an early adopter of like he got the guy that used to do all the in the future of the you know sci-fi war blah 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 the the movie commercial movie guy yeah like the guy who did the the movie trailers though yeah. that voice he used him on two of his albums like at the intro it did like original intros and stuff that's and, pretty fucking dope yeah like he had like real concept and that very quickly evolved and in the like ninety eight to two thousand and two period and basically up until I think it was his Maybe his last two compilations didn't include Tekich, but all of his stuff, he had a lot of Tekich, and he started collaborating with Tekich here and there, too. And those records were available. Moonshine Music, which was hugely influential because it brought a lot of, like, mediocre, but also some really good stuff to the Americas, and was a hugely widely distributed CD company. They put out A Soldier Story, which is one of my all-time favorite drum and bass mixes, and then... uh, by the time I was into drum and bass, I got into um, Project Human was the next big mix that came out by Diesel Boy. And before that, he had done The Sixth Session, which is like the best-selling drum and bass mix uh, or like release of any kind in the United States, at least, ever. Sold like, it didn't go platinum, but I think it went gold or silver. I mean, it was like, they, they moved fucking Pretty copies. Big. Of a double, you know, one CD of mixes, one CD of... Uh, original tracks by diesel boy and so on march 19 2002 i think i had pre-ordered project human from cd now i want to say uh cd now doesn't obviously exist anymore it was eventually what yeah <laughs> i think it was um the the vestiges of it after the dot-com had burst bubble had burst and all that i think was picked up by amazon but you mean i can't get stuff off a of cd now and Redbox anymore Redbox Red is still real. I can't get Netflix to deliver DVDs to me. Yeah. They probably still do that to, like, you know, a bunch of old people. Maybe, yeah. Not us. We're young. Feral. The killer, though, was that Diesel Boy was actively DJing at Club Fluid at what was called Platinum uh, Nights. I think it was every Wednesday or every Thursday for, like, the entirety of my high school. But, like, I was never old enough to get in because it was 21 and over. And it was yeah, okay. right here. You didn't have a fake ID. I didn't. I didn't. Never? No, I, get, I got a fake ID when I turned 20. I know. And it was a bad one from Spring Garden. It was, oh. it was that's a different story for a different day. But, <laughs> but yeah, so, like, I was in love with drum and bass. And, and honestly, by the time I was old enough that I could have tried to sneak in, I wasn't really that into drum and bass anymore. You but fool. those early years, it was so frustrating. I was like, I'm buying your CDs. You're literally 15 miles away, and yet I can't see this drum and bass live. Um, but that, uh, Project Human has, uh, California Curse Remix by Tekich, which is a total 
like beast of a track has all of the good qualities of tech itch like big scary synths big ass drums wonderful drops actually sample straight out of compton going off on a motherfucker like that uh and then it has a remix of reborn by a bunch of u.s artists and i think there's another diesel boy track on there and and then it was buying backwards from there soldier story like i mentioned blah 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 and then eventually i started to find places where i could get moving shadow stuff i started racking up enough babysitting dollars to do that and i wasn't into drugs yet so <laughs> all my money was going to music um yeah so i'm there's two two more personal things and then we're going to jump into it fucking finally the one story is that i bought i finally found a place to get kilobytes volume 2 because at this point it had been at least a year and i was fully obsessed with this mix and i i got my record player i guess it was the next year it must have been i always thought it was like seventh or eighth grade but it seems like when i did my math doing the research for this i got my record player my freshman year of high school so around the same time that i got the record player which i'm going to jump into in a second I finally found a place to order Kilobytes Volume 2. And I was like, this is it. I finally arrived. This was the real player mix that got me into it. And here I am. And so I fucking order it. You were a virgin. Yes. And uh, it's a double CD. And it only had one of the discs. And I emailed oh. the place I bought it from. And I was like, there's only one. They're like, that's the only copy we had. And I was just like... I'm Give kidding. me back half my money? Yeah, I was like... <laughs> they were like, well, you can keep it or you can send it back to us and we can refund you and it was a lot of money so i was like okay and in my weird and specific broken logic and this is i would still probably do this today i was like i'm not going to rip this the the one disc because i want to have the full double disc experience and then it took me like another six or nine months to finally get another copy that had both discs and so for the whole time i was just like oh i deprived myself of having half of it and now I just have none of it because I want to be pure, and that's the dumbest thing I've ever fucking done. Listen, no, no, no one trip, wants but... half of a blowjob, Frank. Yeah, well, that's fair. So, eventually I got it. All was good. That CD is now so broken, so utterly abused from being in a Walkman for, you know, five years of my life pretty much consistently. It doesn't even play without skipping for more than, like, ten seconds so at most. securely to your dungarees. <laughs> yeah, my Jankos. And, uh... <laughs> Let's be real, my Mac gear, my Jankos, my <laughs> kickwear. But yeah, and again, I've shared this story, but just in context, I bought a record player so I could buy drum and bass 12 inches and listen to them. And there was a store that used to exist in, in uh, Manhattan called Breakbeat Science. It was on Orchard Street in the Chandelier Garment District. And I, I got my mom to take me to Bryn Mawr Stereo. They showed me different record players. I had the receiver and other stuff I needed to have a full like classic setup like I have now. I bought a Simico Project 12. I I had to do like the anti-skate fishing line counterweight and all calibration oh. myself, which was not like they should have done that for me. It was craziness. I was, you know, 14 or whatever. I did not have the patience for that. Did a bad job. Uh, and then I went up to New York to see Les Mis and go to dinner and all this stuff. And I got to go to Breakbeat Science. And my mom was like, you know, you can spend a hundred bucks or whatever. I'll buy the records. And, uh, but I had to spend basically the whole day leading up to that, just shopping with my mom, my sister and her friend and her friend's mom. 
and I was like, it's my birthday. This is torture. Like, my mom was like, fucking deal with it. And was... You got to get a... I know, I know. You're such a weenie. I know, but at the time, I was like, so incensed. I was like, how could you do this to me? This is such a betrayal. To me, on my day! My mom was like, I'm not gonna go to New York to just take you to a show, buy you records, and go home. Like, fuck you. And I, like, I couldn't understand how it wasn't anything but unfair. But we went to... Uh, to Breakbeat Science, and I bought Penetration 1, Penetration 2, Penetration 3, Penetration 4, Penetration 6. Uh, so I was I, waiting for the number skip. Yeah. So I got, you know, the first, I got, uh, you know, five of the first six Penetration records. I still don't have number five because I just don't particularly like it, but one day I have to fill that spot in my collection. And then just when I was there, they got a new shipment of records in, and they put on the turntable Stabby. Uh, or uh, sorry, Staw and Paul B uh, backed with Arker in real time Spy Technologies Part 5 and it has this song called Come Closer that's a really catchy tech step song and I was like, I want that one and then uh, I bought Sub Subwave's Bad Ambitions which was a Russian duo on Techage Recordings tech step type of stuff and I remember they had some old jungle record there and I really wanted to get that too and the guy was like, don't buy this record. It's not that good. And we're charging a lot of money for it. And I was like, I really want it. And I don't know what it was. But to this day, I'm like, I still really want it. Just because, you know. Uh, and we've talked about it before again. But Penetration Records all have hentai as their artwork. Uh, sure do. And the early ones especially. I think it was after like 12. They stopped doing unique sleeves. Or I think it was after 14. But we're, we're with my mom's friend, and she's like, oh, what are you getting there? And I, like, show her, and it's, like, tentacle rape and, like, all this other... She was like, what the fuck is this? And, like, gives it back to me. It's like, art, She was like, friend, friend, do you know? Do you know what this is? And she's like, I don't... You know, just whatever, let him have. And uh, and that started my drum and bass 12-inch collection and also and my record. And your hentai. Yeah, and my hentai and my record collection all at the same time. Both are now full-blown addictions. Yes. Uh, so... The first release by Mark Caro was released as Entity. Uh, the album, or the record rather, is called Dreadman. Uh, released on an Ibiza Records in 1993, which samples Predator 2, Grandmaster Flashes, The Message, and Ryuichi Sakimoto, uh, who was a, is a famous Japanese composer. Uh, he did, uh, was it Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, Officer Lawrence? I can't think of the movie's name, but a bunch of other stuff. And I'm going to play a sample of that. We are now... Just talking about Techich from a discography overview perspective. So, my personal shit's still gonna obviously come into this as we get to records I own and have deep love affair with. But let's hear what Techich sounded like in 93 before he was Techich. <laughs>
so that's that's where we start and it's it's like this is rave music you know the and i don't think i maybe made that as clear as i could have but quote-unquote rave music is like where all of this stuff comes from back when raves were like you know kind of the mythic at least for me things i think of of like the ecstasy the warehouses or the open fields or whatever and i've i've been to some real illegal raves in my adulthood just all the good stuff it's like you know basically taking all the good shit about hippie culture which is drugs and sex and well good music i guess you could say too without all of the uh boomer bullshit that followed except for not really because the rave generation had the same sort of mind-melting after effects and blah 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 but anywho it's like sort of uh breakbeat hardcore more i guess into what's jungle but like it's it's 1993 so you couldn't even you know it's i don't think it's so easy to classify but you get to hear those drum beats, you know, the, the break beats in there very fast. You get your ravey. Yeah, and you got your some, you know, nice, like, fun bass. But this is not, we are not at the ruckus. We're not at diagnostics, like, super uh, technical sounding shit. This is, this is just, like, could slot in next to any other older jungle breakbeat hardcore record. Okay, that's fine. Good, but, like, you know. So, um, Not the thing that got freshman Frank's PP all hard yet. Correct. But, you know, with this, you see, though, with the samples that he used on this first record, you already, like, there's what is so, in my opinion, quintessential to that techage identity is immediately there. A love for sci fi that permeates and lasts for the entirety of his career going on through to this day. Uh, also, a lesser pronounced love of old school hip hop. Uh, which still shows up here and there in his records. You've got those building blocks there. Yeah, exactly. And you know, this is these are. I mean, Mark Caro. I don't. I can't even get an age on him online. But I have to imagine he was in like the fifteen to eighteen year old range. Like he was, I'm sure, a youngin when he made this. And so, you know, this is back in the day when it's like if all your friends could each get one piece of gear, you could maybe get enough to all put it together, record yeah. it to DAT, send it to a label. Um, you know, because. Computer integration wasn't as big just yet. That was more like the later 90s. But yeah, so shortly thereafter, we get his first reference, at least as far as I can tell, to Dune, which becomes one of the staples of his referencing points. Uh, Dune! Right, we both love Dune. We're rude Duners. And, (laughs) uh, you know, when this was, I was getting into all this was when I was reading through the series for the first time. And I was just like, this guy is like sampling. And I'd been watching the uh, David Lynch's Dune since I was, I don't know, like six or seven. I just so. started rereading Dune again. Yeah, it rules. I'm a fucking maniac who's probably slightly autistic and I just keep buying things and then going back to the old things over sure. and over again. So I'm going to play a little bit of Factor One by The Spice, which is another name for Tekich. It controls the universe. <laughs> Thank you. 
Yeah, so, again, it's it's pleasant. It's definitely, uh, I would say, less ravey and more thoughtful. It all, you know, a lot of this early and mid-90s pre-Techage, Techage stuff is, has shades of, like, what, like, he could have gone the route of Omnitrio. You listen to Renegade Snares and the drum programming, it's shockingly similar in a lot of ways, and... Uh, the atmospheres are way less aggressive. They're more like spacious and sci-fi, but they're, I would, I would use the word lush. Like that's mm-hmm. not full blown lush, but like fairly lush production while still being minimal. Um, but you know, there's that rhythmic focus, but I find a lot of the song structures still from this era are just not as interesting. And that's probably a technological thing. And also just, he hasn't built up those songwriting chops. But, you know, the other thing that's worth mentioning, because this is going to be true for a long period, is that, you know, really until the proliferation of DVDs and also better internet connections, getting samples for movies and stuff like that, like... It must have been fucking hell. Yeah, like, I mean, especially you listen to old Skinny Puppy records, which are just like a constant smorgasbord of just like relentless sampling onslaught. And it's, you know, and they're sampling, like, Italian flicks and Spanish horror on top of, like, you know, whatever anti-drug commercials and all this other stuff, like, rapid fire. And you think, like, you had to either own that on VHS, then, like, get to the right place, run it into your tape, have a recorder. Like, getting these samples was not as easy, like, as it is today. Basically, just Google it on YouTube, record it to Audacity, and then throw a filter on it and be like, oh, I'm a a musician. Especially not someone who is based in the U.K., Using Hollywood movies. Yeah. Well, that's... Uh, he's not... In the 90s. Yeah, not as big of a horror guy, so it's like it wouldn't be quite as hard as, you know, if he was trying to get those, you know, in a grindcore band, trying to get those gore grind yeah. samples. But still, yeah. It's... uh and, and again, like, VHS tapes, you know, were cheap by the time they were uh, disintegrating as an industry and a format, but... For a long time, VHS tapes were fucking expensive, like, wow. especially when you look at inflation. I mean, they were not, especially when they first came out. Well, when they first came out, weren't they like $1,000 a tape or some shit? No, no, like, no, no, no. It was, really was something ridiculous. No, they, it wasn't that high. It Maybe 100 Yeah, I think it might have been closer to 100, 100 With inflation, might be significantly more. No, but. I mean, like, it, well, yeah, with inflation, it'd definitely be more, but that's how... Once again, another tangent, that's how um, video rental places became a thing, because right. they buy they'd have the startup capital buy these and then they'd be able to rent them out and then it became cheaper for them to go to sell them to people. It's Yeah. If you guys want to watch a semi-interesting documentary, The Last Buckbuster, parts of it are really cool. Yeah. Some of it, not so much. So, but again, you, you know, we've got the reference to Dune, we've got sci-fi samples, we've got, we've got uh, an ear for production that's not, like, wildly different than a lot of other, con- you know, uh, contemporaries. Dude, but yeah, uh, it's good shit. The, these both of these records, the actual his entity one, I think, isn't that outrageous. This record, the Spice, which is also, I wonder that what that's a reference to. So that's Techage number four, Techage Recordings four. So this is nineteen ninety five. I think Techage Recordings started in uh, nineteen ninety four. If memory serves me right, I'm gonna have that in my notes here in a minute. We were already. We've got an identity established. We've got a record label established. Uh, it's cool. So, uh, you know, I want to talk just just briefly. Uh, we've, we're mentioning all these samples. So this is just a sort of, this is not a comprehensive list, but this is a fairly 
this is some noteworthy samples. So uh, he samples Dune at least five times. Uh, there's uh, the spice, the fear, whirlwind, hunter seeker. I'm missing number five uh, apparently, but uh, I have almost all of those records. It's like if there's a Dune sample on on board. I think one of them samples the miniseries. Most of them sample the Lynch film. Uh, he samples the Constantine TV show, which came out after the Keanu Reeves film. He samples Doctor Who. He samples the TV show Lex. He samples the uh, wonderful anime Wicked City, which the song that samples that is called Dimensions. We're going to be playing that at a later episode. But uh, there's a difference. The UK dub is different than the American dub. And I fucking love that song. And I also love that movie. So I start one of my albums. It's partially an ode to Tekich, partially an ode to Wicked City, but I use the American dub intro where he uses the UK dub intro for his thing and it just gives me the tickles. It's just a, it's 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 just a dude we know at this point because it's just all the things. Yeah. It's just all the things. Yeah. He samples the Dark Crystal. He samples the Lord of the Rings. He samples X Men. He samples Highlander. He samples the Hulk. He samples Stephen King's Rose Red. He samples Sliders. He samples Stargate, which I love, and I know so. The Stargate slip or Sliders. Rose Red. Oh. I also love Sliders. Okay, but um, so the weird thing about Rose Red is that it was a mini series. I think it it was back in the days of like, it was like on ABC or something, but. I was like, oh, yeah, new Stephen King thing. I w- I'll watch it. And it was like four or five parts. I could be completely wrong on that. But I fucking loved it. And like a few years ago, I was like... I want to rewatch that. Yeah, because we, we'd, we'd watch The Shining. I'd rewatch... Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery, uh, the original It miniseries. And, you know, it's when the new Its were coming out and everything. Right, so right, it's right. Like, And I, I, you know, I don't love everything that Stephen King's ever written. But I do like Stephen King as a writer and... His son, which you got me into because of um, uh, Lock and Key, but yeah, it's it's you can't fucking find it anywhere, and it's uh, you can't get it on DVD because they did make a DVD. It was like NBC, ABC. It was one of those like prime things. So when you actually mentioned that earlier to me when we were like briefly going over like the stuff that he samples, I was like, fucking Ro-. like I've brought up Rose Red to like so many people and they're like, what the fuck is Rose yeah, Red? Yeah, we're gonna, the song's called Haunted and it's one of his later penetration records and it's a, it's sort of in the era of like when Skullstep became more of a thing, but it's really a good track and has, it's, it's a, yeah, it's if you, if you guys can find a way to watch Rose Red, I highly suggest it. If you guys know a way that I can own Rose Red, please, contact us yeah so so that's kind of one of the things that i like about him that a lot of in any genre of electronic music is when people pull straight from hollywood blockbusters especially ones that are current it's like ugh, yuck you know like i i'm not listening to this music to be thinking of vapid trash even if this music is the equivalent of mcdonald's in some ways (laughs) um you know, but it, it really it really takes away from me. Like whether it's power electronics or hardcore techno does this all the time where it's like all sci fi blockbuster movies samples and I'm like, come on, there's so much more than that. Like, you know, give me show me your fucking depth of movie knowledge. Oh no, you don't have any? And maybe if you're, you know, Dutch and you don't you're not permeated with these films, it's less bad. But like as an American I'm always just like, This is not good. And Tekich doesn't do that for the most part. Like he 
he's picking from TV shows and stuff, but like, I don't, even back then I didn't really watch TV. And so, you know, I can, I figured out a lot of his samples over time through process of elimination. And a lot of them I've had to Google, but it's cool because I typically don't know what they are, but they serve that great function of giving a song a little bit of extra narrative and a little bit of like extra thematic bite. And, uh, you know, a lot of sampling is like samples of a sample of a sample of a sample. So derivative. And I'm, so it's, it's one of the many good things about him. If I hear one more goddamn boondog saying sample, I'm going to blow my fucking brains out. Yeah. So, uh, he, he starts Tychus recordings, then also starts releasing on moving shadow in 1996 as I stated, Moving Shadow was one of the most famous and forward-thinking drum and bass labels. So, you know, he hitched his pony to, or hitched his wagon, rather, to the, the right horse at the right time uh, as they were transitioning into, like, a purely drum and bass label and, you know, had way more reach than many artists would have. It's why he's in, you know, an on the Grand Theft Auto 3 soundtrack, which was a chart-breaking sales, you know, as far as sales went game. And Moving Shadow since gone under. They're now called Overshadow is sort of the label that's risen from the ashes, which sells 12 inches for way too much money at way too limited copies. But in an age where making digital or physical media is essentially a waste of time and money in many ways, at least they're Unless still doing it. for expensive and limited quantities. Right. And so I did buy the one that he put out last year, which was going to make my year end list, but just wasn't quite up to snuff. Uh, but... It's good for the 25 or $30 I paid for it. I don't know that it was worth that much money, but it was like, well, pay that much now or pay more later. So Way more. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, as I said in my notes, Tegich Recordings. So he starts it with Darren Beale, a.k.a. Decoder, a.k.a. part of Koshin, who's later like kind of a big deal crossover R&B drum and bass group. Uh They started in 1994. Their first release is Psychokinesis, The Secret EP, uh, the label releases 55 records, in de- including Decoder's second album between 1994 and 2009. I think at that point, I think those were, that was one of the... There wasn't much in the way of albums on the label. It was that, I think... Because I want to say that Lime Wax's first album was Tech Freaks. I don't even think that was a Tech Tech Recordings label. But it had a steady release schedule, but not an overwhelming one unlike a lot of labels which is smart and for i think a good chunk of the label's life while he was with moving shadow the music was published by moving shadow and therefore they held the copyright and the part of the reason i think this is that much of the label's material is still unavailable in most digital formats at least through Tekich directly. And uh, at least at one point, you could buy like all Tekich's Moving Shadow stuff on iTunes, but I don't think you can get it on Bandcamp, and he certainly doesn't sell it directly through his Tekich Recordings digital Bandcamp, and many of these releases, like a huge swath of them, never got releases later. Some of them do, so I don't know what the deal is with the copyright stuff, but I have a feeling that... All of the things tied to Moving Shadow are permanently fucked by Moving Shadow going under the way it did. And I'm sure there must be some rights issues because I know also Penetration Records, which was the sub-label of Tekich, was distributed at least partially by Moving Shadow. 
and uh, or published rather and again the majority of penetration record stuff is unavailable mm-hmm. which seems crazy because for people of my age I think a lot of us think of like those early runs and it's like if I could buy a clean digital copy of that I might do that for some of those records and they're just not up anywhere it's odd so yeah the label Techage recording starts off with Jungle and early D&B uh, but develops into tech step and dark step sounds over the next eight years. So Decoder was always like more on the techie and funky side, whereas Techage has always been more on the darker and heavier side. But there's that's not always the case for either of them. Sometimes they go both ways. And they they have some uh, guests throughout, on the label throughout the history of it. In the early years, it was Decoder, Ice Minus, Biostasis, and Subwave. Uh, in the couple years right before the label went defunct, it was DJ Control, John Rolodex, Cryptic Minds, and Leon Switch, uh, Limewax, Beaky, SPL, Current Value, Gein, and Nanotech. Basically a lot of like skull step shit for a very brief period. And uh, like 2005, 2009, that's when that um, skull step t- style of stuff dominates. 1998 to 2003 is more of what I think of as like the golden era. And I have most of the records from that period because they're just all so fucking good basically between i guess it was like 2009 and 2012 the label was pretty dead and then i want to say it's like 2012 or 13 we get to progression threat which was a triple album that was released digitally and more and more stuff starts to come out again and now it's like a full functioning mostly digital but also doing physical media label and current artists include indigenous and cinespike Doom Poets, Grief, Voyage, Bracken, Terror Cell, Layer 3, and Paragon. Uh, They release what are quote-unquote CDs, although they're actually professionally duplicated CDRs, so I do not understand why they spend the money for that, but just don't buy a full-on fucking CD uh, for the pressings. But they also have done uh, some vinyl releases for some of this stuff. But one of the things to note, too, is that Back in like the golden era of D and B in two thousand one, you could release a an a CD that would have like fourteen tracks or maybe less if you were giving them the full length, the, the same as they were on the twelve inches. So you know between five and seven minutes easily for most songs. Most of the time, closer to seven. And on the vinyl version of these albums, every single song would have its own side of vinyl so most albums were like five pieces of like five 12 inches together and nobody is willing to spend that much money to put out fucking drum and bass albums anymore like the idea that you would just put out basically five singles for the cost of an album and charge way less is just like not something anybody can afford to do between the cost of vinyl the delays in getting it the exorbitant prices for shipping so now most techage stuff that comes out on vinyl, it's like, oh, here's a full album with 12 songs. Here's the vinyl version has four. And it's like, and it's still 30 or $40. And it's like, <laughs> like, I get it. I know the industry has changed, but there are aspects of this stuff. I don't want to dwell on this too much right now. When we get to the end of sort of, or to the current day, I'm going to bitch about this a lot. Um, this is going to be a 25 part series, by the way, guys. No, it should be three at most, so. But yeah, so that's that's Techage Recordings. It's 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 gonna have a big influence on the series overall because it's his label, and also uh, you can so clearly see his eras of production styles and philosophies and quality um, through through the releases on it. 
I mentioned Tech Freaks recordings. That was 2004 to 2009, a collaborative label with Dylan Hillsley of Freak Recordings, Musica, and Into Sound. Um, Dylan was ran with like B-Key, Fax, Loxy, those guys. He came out of Renegade Hardware and other labels, but um, he actually, I think, still lives... No, I think he lives in Virginia now. I want to say he lives in like Richmond, but he lived in Philly for a long time. Uh, in my college and law school years, and I used to know people that partied with him and heard some stories, but whatever, that's beside the point. That label primarily did albums from Skull Step artists, but uh, it started off with a bang with the One More Nail in the Coffin EP and Destruction Ritual LP, which I'll talk about a little bit more later. And then I want to end this uh, label overview and talk about Penetration Records. So, Penetration Records was a sub-label of Tekich Recordings. Uh, it was published by Moving Shadow. It's solely Tekich material or remixes of Tekich material. The very last release is unique in the sense of the A-side, or no, it's the B-side is a remix of a Limewix. The, the B-side is a remix of a... The B-side... You'll understand in a second. The B-side... <laughs> is a remix of a Lime Wax track. Uh, and that's, I think, the only release that has an artist, like the main artist is not Tekich. I mean, again, there's remixes of Tekich stuff, but it's just interesting in that way. There were 24 releases. Uh, releases 1 through 14 all featured unique hentai artwork uh, and generally some kind of slightly unique center labels. Just gonna be a bunch of censorship on our Instagram, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. Dang, uh, some of it's already censored because it's hentai. But then fifteen through twenty-one, there were standardized sleeves, but they still had some level of hentai. I think that's when they all got the swirly. Yeah, that's that's they're all like the spermy, like cybernetic sperms, and then the center labels have some of them have unique art, some of them don't. And then 22 and 23 have this girl like basically bent over fingering herself and the center labels like where her vagina would be. It's pretty crude, pretty rude and lewd. And then uh, number 24 has no sleeve at all. And the label operated from 2001 to 2009. And basically, I want to say it was, I can't remember when this huge German distributor collapsed, but it, Millie... Milu, Milieu, Plateau, and some other humongous German CD labels uh, collapsed as a result of this distribution network collapse. And it just, it was part of a chain reaction that essentially, like, for a long time, completely destroyed the record industry, the world around. And some of this had to do with digital distribution or more like digital piracy. It was also just like changing times. People weren't buying music, a variety of different things. You and, wouldn't steal a car, Frank. Right. And um, they were originally distributed by Alpha Magic. Then it was P12. Uh, and then eventually Load Media Distro. And Alpha Magic was a big distributor for a long time. They did tons of different drum and bass labels. And when they went, you know, it was just like, as the distributors failed, then the stores failed, then the labels failed, and it, it just, like, people just weren't buying shit. And so, a lot of these later penetration records are just 
there's just not that many copies and they're not even that good but some of them are like ridiculously expensive and you're just like why you know what i mean like it's it's all so dumb so the first two records Tekich did on moving shadow were can't you see dub mix and the can't you see remix and those were moving shadow 74 and 74 r released in 1996 in june and uh november um and the next record was uh, just after that, The Dreamer, backed by Rough and Tough, which is Moving Shadow number 99. So it kind of goes to show you how quickly the label was moving at that point, putting out 20 records in the course of five months. And um, I think this is, we're going to do this, and we're going to do one more record, we're going to wrap it, and then we're going to just be basically playing music uh, for the next two episodes, and I'm going to talk about it and... You guys are going to have to suffer. I'll bring a pillow and a blanket. So The Dreamer <laughs> is uh, one of the most beautiful and one of my all-time favorite older Tekkage tracks. It's It's got great drum programming. It's got like great synths and bass. And it, just like the whole vibe of it, it has this like little bit of an Eastern feel to it. And nice chopped amens. It's dark, but it's uplifting. It's... It's really beautiful. So I'm going to play that for a couple minutes, and then we're going to talk about one more record, and then we're going to pick up getting really into the good shit immediately. So yeah, so this is The Dreamer. The Dreamer.
it, and I got to look at hentai while listening to it, so. Yeah. Best of both worlds. Yeah, so it's funny. The Amen doesn't come in, uh, at least if I was paying attention well, to like almost the four minute mark. So, you know, a drum that, uh, drum loop that came to, for me in so many ways, like signify a Tegich track, it, it still makes its, of course, appearance, but it just isn't the focal point. But I feel like you can tell, especially if you listen to other drum and bass from the era, like there's just so much more precision and craft you know the, it, it's in the name like it's technical it's it has that and it scratches that itch it has that element that reminds me a lot of source direct where there's this really effective use of space and space between the elements so that you know you can either have not very much going on but feel compelled and interested or have a lot going on but not feel busy like the the balancing is always right both in the mix and the production quality, like, it sounds really good. I mean, that that's, track is from 1996, and you listen to a lot of other shit from 1996, and it sounds a lot more raw than that. Uh, and, you know, but, yeah, those, that, like, that, that, it's, there's a level of, like, ooh, like, this kind of nice, kind of dreamy, you know, almost, like, a literal jungle-ish vibe type of thing to it, and, uh, I think it's, you know, it's crazy. Like, this is the third release on Moving Shadow, and already you have a standout record. Not not maybe top ten all-time Tekich records, but depending on how you like your drum and bass, could be up there. It's it's really good. Um, but the next one is even better, and is probably top five Tekich records. It kind of signifies everything good he's going to do for the next couple of years it's fucking menacing as hell it's uh definitely got that like tech step futuristic sci-fi edge to it it's got really good drum programming fucking evil as shit bass uh it's called the virus backed by the watch uh backed by watch out moving shadow 101 so this is just two records later on the label released in February 3rd, 1997, and uh, this is what I'm going to refer to several times over throughout the series as an Almond fucking smasher, or a fucking Almond smasher. Where it's an just, Almond smasher. Yeah, it's just about those nuts crushing them. making that Almond milk. Well, an Almond smasher, I mean, it sounds just as bad, but um, yeah, it's about the Almond drum loop and, and breakbeat, whatever you want to call it. Everything and, uh, back in my mouth sounds weird right now at this point. <laughs> um, is this what's taking us out? Yeah. So I'm going to play, I'm going to play in a little bit after the in, you know, beginning of the song and play into the first drop. And uh, I think it'll speak for itself. So, you know, figure uh, we're going to get a lot more like this moving forward. But Take this, off your headphones. Find the loudest speaker in your house. I don't care if you look at your Wake up your baby. Wake up your baby. Turn it up as loud as possible. Get a divorce. Yeah. I, I hope that by the very, you know, at the very least, at the end of the series, you'll you'll be given Tekich a real listen. Maybe you don't love what he does now. Maybe you don't like his earliest stuff. But there might be some gems in here. You know, if you don't like drum and bass at all, then you probably won't skip the next couple episodes. But otherwise... No, I mean, j listen, if you don't like drum and bass, just... Just go on your phone and just listen to the episode. But, like, you don't have to listen to it. Like, you know, it's silence your phone yeah. or whatever. Just let it play. Just let it play. Sure. I would also recommend Speed or Coke. Yeah. You know, start doing no. those drugs. What? No. 
No, 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 they're good. No. Because they're, they're fun. Oh, we can't say that? No, I don't. Oh, You're right. the lawyer. song in probably 2001 or two so it's been 20 years i've been listening to the virus and it's just like still and then just all the i mean you immediately are already getting heavily filtered drums drums with multiple different types of attacks at the start of the drum loop you've got multiple different styles of breakbeats at the same time all getting chopped up like it's just all of the things you get a huge bass line big spook atmosphere and again perfectly balanced production and um you know it's it's just it's especially noticeable to listen to this record from early 1997 and you compare it to some of the stuff that he winds up doing in 2003 or 2009 or 2020 and you're like damn like what happened like this sounds so fucking hungry but it also sounds so uh confident you know and a lot of the later stuff i mean this happens to producers in any genre but like it gets lazy like you know it's not like every song needs to be like this but it's hard to set the bar this high and then for me to listen to something that sounds like anybody could have done it 13 years old on the fucking sampler and be like that's better you know like Uh come on but the virus stands the test of time and it also always makes me think of the jamie lee curtis movie on the boat with the russians so me too no 
virus. The one we watched that shitty commercial for, the aliens shoot the electricity from space, make Robo-Men. We've never watched it together, but anyways, you've seen the trailer many times. Uh, I think Alec Baldwin, Stephen Baldwin, one of the Baldwins is in it. Outbreak. So that's all we've got on Techage tonight. And Twelve monkeys. <laughs> no, no, you're thinking of 13 monkeys. but 13 ghosts. 14 ghosts. Starring Matthew Lillard. 17 bananas. So thank you all for listening, uh, <laughs> and yeah, I'm really excited to be doing this. I, I, we've talked about this for quite a while. I did a lot of research for this, so I hope you guys are going to enjoy it. And um, yeah, that's it for me. Yeah, we've got a few more episodes of this. It probably won't take us a year to finish, like uh, like a certain Japanese director. Well, the research is all done for it. So yeah, yeah, that's true. But uh, yeah, we will see you next time. Later, nerds. Later.